This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company and as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the August 2023 Literature Review Series featuring uh, two special guests, Katie Rogers from MD Anderson Cancer Center and Eric Johnston from WVU Medicine. Now, the episode leads off with featured articles, a six-pack of studies highlighting some of the best articles from the month of August. Then the discussion shifts to articles focusing on sepsis, infectious diseases, and a potpourri section followed by the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends of the pod, in the pharmacist featured section, a.k.a. the front of the fridge. Why is it called the front of the fridge, you may ask? That's where things go that you're proud of, that you're happy of. And we're always proud when we get to talk about some of this pharmacist featured literature here. So if you want to vote, right, be sure to follow on Twitter, X, whatever, Instagram, at pharmacy to dose, T-O to dose. Uh, Then we wrap up with our fun non-clinical section, the grab bag of articles. Now, you may be wondering, Nick, it's January 2024. What is going on? So uh, Eric and Katie win the award for the most patient guests of all time, literally. Uh, We recorded this episode uh, days before my sister unexpectedly passed in early November, and the podcast was obviously put on hold for a bit. So now that we're back, rapidly catching up on our literature review series, we appreciate everyone's patience. That's what was happening. So you get a couple references of early November, and of course, it's late January, early February. So um, August was just an absolute awesome month, especially for published literature. So, so glad we get to highlight these awesome studies. So let's get going. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, very excited to introduce the two guests for our uh, August literature review series, uh, Katie Rogers and Eric Johnston. Now, Katie is the PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, she's got a great Twitter handle, at CritCareKatie. Um, and then Eric is a PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at WVU Medicine, J.W. Ruby Memorial Hospital, say that five times fast, in Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Eric Johnston underscore RX. Katie and Eric, thanks for joining me today. How are you both doing? Thanks for having us, Nick. Um, I'm super excited to be here um, and can't wait to get started. Doing great. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, the, the pleasure is all mine. And we realized... Pharmacy is a small world, literally real world example. We're we're recording, we're planning, and I will I'll release a, a picture of it. But in the in like my office, essentially, I have pictures of the Butler Final Four, and there's a one of them was in Houston, and the other one features West Virginia. So boom, anytime I'm gonna bring it, I can bring it back to Butler. That is gonna happen. So uh, without further ado, we have an awesome uh, awesome month of articles today to cover. So I feel like we have to get started and. For our kind of featured articles, our six-pack of studies, um, I do want to point out throughout the rest of the episode as well, you're going to hear more JACCP articles than normal, and that's because the August issue was a special issue on clinical pharmacy practice in critical care uh, with guest editors and friends of the pod, Ty Kaiser and Amy Zerba. So just want to be sure, point that out, what a great job uh, those two editors did. Uh, and on that note, uh, Eric, let's kick it off with a review article for those who want to live the phrase, if in doubt, take it out. I mean, that is an excellent phrase there. And also good play on words here with the article title. It's called The Clot Thickens, How to Use Viscoelastic Testing in Critical Illness. And yes, comes from Journal of American College of Clinical Pharmacy. It's a wonderfully crafted review with the critical care and emergency medicine pharmacist in mind for how literature has been evolving for viscoelastic testing in critical illness. Viscoelastic testing, the umbrella term for thromboelastography or TEG and rotational thromboelastometry or ROTEM has been around since the late 1940s, but has exploded in popularity over the last couple decades. Reason being is that this test gives us so much more information compared to traditional coagulation assays, and each component is important to describing the life and function of a clot. The test starts with just a line, and that time describes how long it takes to start forming a clot. The graph then starts to diverge and make a wine glass-shaped graph, which represents the efficacy of various aspects of the clotting cascade working together. Next, the maximal width and general maintenance of a nice wide graph represents clot stability and platelet function. Finally, the graph tapers off and shows the degree and rate of fibrinolysis occurring. The authors put together a fantastic table and graphic, table one and figure one, respectively, that breaks down all this, including all the fancy terminology, and I will absolutely be printing this off for future reference. 
This article then goes through applications of viscoelastic testing in trauma, neurocritical care, cardiothoracic surgery, liver disease, and medication-induced coagulopathy. And I want to touch on a few key points from each of these areas. In trauma, we'll start with resuscitation. There's been some data, mostly retrospective at this point, that has accumulated that viscoelastic testing may be able to improve mortality and or blood product consumption. These are super important outcomes, and it will be interesting to see how evidence continues to evolve in this area. The benefit here is that viscoelastic testing is able to provide key information about what defect may be driving a trauma-induced coagulopathy, such as identifying hyperfibrinolysis with an elevated LY30 and thus supporting tranexamic acid use. In neurocritical care, uh, there could be a promising role to inform antithrombotic therapy after intra and extracranial stenting. There's been a couple of retrospective studies that have found that TAG may be able to serve as a surrogate for diminished CYP2C19 activity and inform patients in which ticagrelor may be a su suitable alternative to clopidogrel. For cardiothoracic surgery, uh, the evidence here really spans the whole perioperative period. Analogous to resuscitation and trauma, intraoperative use of viscoelastic testing during cardiothoracic surgery may help reduce blood product utilization by targeting specific aspects of coagulopathy. But preoperatively, for our cabbage patients, TAG with platelet mapping can be extremely useful for informing the return of platelet function if they are already on a P2Y12 inhibitor. We know that there's conventional hold times, like seven days for Prasagrel, five for Clopidogrel, and three days for Ticagrelor. But with employing TAG with platelet mapping, the majority of patients can undergo cabbage earlier than these typical hold times. And target cabbage is a trial that represents such a strategy and did not reveal significant differences in bleeding outcomes. Next up is liver disease. Liver disease doesn't have any clear-cut rules for viscoelastic testing, uh, but I'm a big fan of TAG and Rotem in this population due to the traditional tests like INR showing hypocoagulability. However, such patients actually experience a state of hypercoagulability because of reduced anticoagulant activity. There's also issues with platelet function and hyperfibrinolysis that may also be informed in liver failure. A lot to look forward to here as we're still in pursuit of some sort of protocol or algorithm for how to utilize viscoelastic testing in liver disease. Last and certainly but not least is medication-induced coagulopathy, considering we are pharmacists. Here, the article jumps into something that I think we all want to know. How do we use this for DOACs? And unfortunately, the answer isn't totally clear, and different machines produce different results. The bottom line is that the TAG-6S is the most reliable for detecting presence of DOACs. Furthermore, most testing among machines regarding the presence of DOAX has not been done in critically ill adults, so applicability is still evolving here. In conclusion, given the rise to fame of viscoelastic testing, I believe this article is OneDrive, Printout, or whatever you prefer to save good stuff worthy, and is a good benchmark for the state of literature surrounding viscoelastic testing and critical care as it pertains to pharmacists. Clearly, some limitations exist for this data, but viscoelastic testing can be a unique tool in our tool belt to help inform decisions that we may not have had great information for previously. And hello to uh, Caitlin Brown, 
uh, Megan Rick, Brian Gilbert, you know, you love the phrase, take it out. That's Brian, or at least where I got it from. Uh, authors on this review article. I love that you shouted out uh, table one and figure one. I mean, table one is begging to be put in a peripheral brain. That's literally looks like its purpose is to get, to get, uh, printed at one fourth its size and popped into one of those carrying around in your pocket. Uh, always a sucker for a good figure. So Eric, you highlighted, you did a good job of highlighting a lot of those patient populations that we either try to use it in or looking to use it in. So is your experience, like, are you using it in any of those populations that you kind of highlighted? Yeah, thus far, you know, my rotations have taken me, you know, through the ED with some staffing and been in the surgical ICU and, and the MICU. And most of what I've seen has been in, in trauma populations, uh, seen it used in some uh, coagulopathy, uh, seen a, you know, uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation case as well. TEG was used to, to guide our resuscitation efforts. Um, but I think more so that population than, than my time in the MICU so far. Yeah, they, they describe that the, the purpose of this review is to serve as a, a how-to primer for critical care pharmacists to interpret and utilize viscoelastic testing in practice. Um, and I think you did a good job highlighting the different spectrums. Um, but then I think also right pointing out that it's kind of for those who are just getting introduced with it, some of the basics, but then also going into the nitty-gritty, talking about the studies. I think I found my favorite, right? Eric found his favorite description. I found mine in this study. Uh, tag, it's an EKG for the the blood what a i'm gonna have to figure out which one of the authors came up with that amazing phrase if anyone's listening definitely let me know but i like that they even describe differences in specific tag machines to describe their accuracy in identifying the presence of a doac you can definitely tell right pharmacists were on the the authorship there so uh zip drive one drive you know whatever i you know, definitely um, save worthy, exactly what you'd expect from from author group of this magnitude. Um, so uh, let's shift gears here for a second and uh, highlight a new set of consensus recommendations with pharmacists all over the place. So Katie, take it away. Thanks, Nick. So next we'll talk about the a special article published in Pharmacotherapy. It's the first international consensus recommendation for the use of prolonged infusion beta-lactam antibiotics endorsed by some of our favorite groups. So SCCM, IDSA, ACCP, and more all collaborated with first author Lisa Hong. We all know that beta-lactams are time-dependent antibiotics, and the time the free concentration of the drug remains above the minimum inhibitory concentration, or MIC, during the dosing interval determines their effectiveness. So theoretically, it makes a lot of sense to dose beta-lactams as prolonged infusions to optimize the time above MIC and therefore bactericidal activity. This strategy also avoids high peaks above MIC, which were thought to contribute to adverse reactions. The consensus guidelines describe two infusion strategies, short infusions and prolonged infusions. Short infusions are over 30 to 60 minutes, while prolonged infusions include both extended infusions over 3 to 4 hours and continuous infusions over 24 hours. Interestingly, any infusion strategy which is over 1 hour but less than 3 hours was excluded from these guidelines. Something important to note is that the strongest recommendation given in the clinical outcomes is a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence. To me, that means these consensus guidelines pose a lot of questions that can guide future research on beta-lactams, and the authors appear to agree, as every recommendation is accompanied by a section on future research needs. 
The guideline writing committee developed PICO questions and non-PICO questions referred to as background questions. Each of the 12 questions is accompanied by a consensus statement and recommendations, and I encourage everyone to take a look through all of them, but here I'm only going to highlight a few that are most pertinent to critical care. Question number two asks if prolonged infusions of beta-lactams result in enhanced bacterial killing relative to short infusions in preclinical PKPD models of infections. Another way to ask this question is, does our theory about why prolonged infusions are more effective actually pan out in the PKPD studies? Their consensus recommendation unanimously states that prolonged infusions have demonstrated equivalent or better killing compared to short infusions, but only in gram-negative infections. The authors support this recommendation using animal studies, and based on the spectrum of activity of most beta-lactams, favoring gram-negative infections is expected, so this matches with our PKPD theory. Question number four asks if we should be using therapeutic drug monitoring for beta-lactams. Their consensus recommendation unanimously states that they cannot make a recommendation for or against routine monitoring for prolonged infusions based on the data we currently have. They do suggest that any monitoring be personalized to the patient, indication, and drug. As pharmacists, this really is our area of expertise, and I can't wait to see what additional literature our pharmacist colleagues published in the next few years regarding beta-lactam monitoring. Question number seven asks if prolonged infusion beta-lactams can be preferred over short infusions in severely ill patients to improve mortality or clinical cure. Their consensus recommendation unanimously suggests using prolonged infusions over short infusions to reduce mortality and increase clinical cure, particularly in patients with gram-negative infections. They reviewed 20 randomized controlled trials, 13 using continuous infusions, and 7 using prolonged infusions. The meta-analysis showed a numerically lower mortality rate with prolonged infusions compared to short infusions, but there was no statistically significant difference. Major trials reviewed include Bling2, Bliss, and Mercy trials. And if you're looking for a deep dive into that literature, check out the rapid reaction on the Mercy trial from the pod on August 2nd of this year. But the gist is that these trials may not be completely representative of populations that would benefit most from prolonged infusions of beta-lactams, which leaves us with so much opportunity for additional studies to be thoughtfully designed to fill in this gap in literature. Question number 10 asks, should a loading dose be administered over no loading dose when using prolonged infusion beta-lactam antibiotics in adults to improve mortality or clinical care? In this unanimous consensus statement, the authors split their recommendations into extended infusion or continuous infusion. For extended infusions over three to four hours, the experts could not recommend for or against a loading dose due to lack of evidence. However, for continuous infusions, they do suggest the use of a loading dose over no loading dose to improve clinical success. In terms of clinical cure, the subgroup analysis found a statistically significant improvement in clinical cure when loading doses were utilized immediately prior to initiation of continuous infusion. In terms of mortality, there was no difference between prolonged and short infusions in the meta-analysis. So the improvement is really in clinical cure, which can still be a meaningful outcome for our patients. Quite a few of the questions posed by the authors do not have enough evidence for the experts to make a decision. So these are identified areas where we need more research so that hopefully the next iteration of these consensus guidelines can address these clinical questions. A few of the remaining questions include, if beta-lactams are stable over prolonged infusions, if there's any safety advantage with prolonged infusions, and if prolonged infusions would improve clinical efficacy in patients who are obese. Overall, this consensus provides expert evaluation of the existing literature and points out future areas of research on beta-lactams. 
Well, first things first, uh, Katie, thanks for the plug on the uh, Mercy Trial Rapid Reaction X episode with uh, ID experts, extraordinaires, uh, Aaron McCreary and Jason Pogue. But uh, getting to this um, awesome highlighted article, you know, just huge kudos to like the group of pharmacists, right, led by first and senior authors, Lisa Hong and Mark Sheets. I mean, uh, Katie, you mentioned it endorsed by seven national and international societies not these random ones right but all the big hitters that we that we know and love and this is one of those where uh, the supplementary appendix is a treasure trove of references uh, it looks at beta lactam administration effects on outcomes it also they also include like their own kind of meta-analyses um, diving into specific subgroups. Did you receive a loading dose? Are you sick? Are you not sick? Right. And doing those. So, um, the other, the only other thing I want to highlight, cause I thought Katie did a really good job of mentioning this is that, you know, guidelines and consensus recommendations, they're typically very good at giving you the recommendations or what their thoughts are. But I like that these authors are going to kind of a step further and taking a dive into like the future research needs and all of those question domains, right? Helping guide our researchers into uh, which questions we currently need some help uh, answering. So uh, awesome job here by, by all involved. Now, from beta-lactam administration to beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring, let's shift gears here. And I want to cover uh, the next article in the featured section here um, that is written by pharmacists from the Mayo Clinic Health System for the Bloom Study Group. And they published a quote-unquote how-to guide uh, for pharmacist-led implementation of beta-lactam TDM in critically ill patients, published in, of course, JACCP. Quick aside, we started off the featured article section with three pharmacist-written articles. Uh, Well done. What a a month. Um, But kind of going back to this one, the authors describe that the manuscript characterizes how they implemented this program and basically when they encountered problems, what were their problem-solving strategies? Um, I think if you were playing listserv bingo, um, there would be, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. It would be probably the middle space, I guess. So that's what this article is helping you try to do, right? Not reinvent the wheel. Um, So figure one is beautiful in it. It breaks down the whole process visually. But I want to point out in that figure, the timeline. And the timeline was July 2021 when it started. And there's even a a note before that they did like five things before it even started. And then it goes through December 2022, right? So this is like essentially 18 months of of planning and implementation, education, and those kinds of things. So it takes time and the key is preparation and education. Uh, So I think this is an article we will all be referencing as beta-lactam TDM becomes more common Uh, But what stands out to me, uh, three things. You need the support of your organization. If you want to do this big project and your health system or hospital is not okay with it, it's going to be challenging. You're going to hit roadblocks. Um, Multidisciplinary involvement is key, right? One of the highlights from this article is they point out how much you need to collaborate with the lab. And I feel like you you might forget that, right? That like that's pretty big component of how are we going to get this monitoring done? You can't work in silos. Everyone has to kind of come together. So uh, what a great article helping others in the profession, creating a roadmap, kind of helping them learn from challenges they encountered. So really cool there. So let's shift gears here for a second. Eric, talk to us about a secondary analysis featuring our two favorite thrombolytics. 
Thanks, Nick. Uh, this article is titled Safety and Efficacy of Tenecteplase Compared with Alteplase in Patients with LVO, Large Vessel Occlusion, Stroke. This was published in Journal American Medical Association, Neurology. And the treatment of acute ischemic stroke relies upon this prompt administration of fibrinolytics to appropriate patients, and historically, Alteplase was the most common agent to do this. Over the last several years, more and more head-to-head comparisons have emerged comparing tenecteplase with alteplase, and American Heart Association, American Stroke Association guidelines have evolved to incorporate such data with a new recommendation to maybe consider tenecteplase over alteplase for patients undergoing mechanical thrombectomy based upon favorable reperfusion and neurologic outcomes from the EXTEND IATNK trial. This outcome of improved reperfusion has been a key component of discussions about the merits of tenecteplase, and the ACT trial has been instrumental in continuing to inform this conversation about alteplase versus tenecteplase. The ACT trial is close to home. It comes from Canada and randomized patients who were presenting within four and a half hours symptom onset to alteplase, 0.9 mg per kg, max 90 mg, or tenecteplase. 0.25 0.25 mg per kg, max 25 milligrams for treatment of acute ischemic stroke. And it assessed for non-inferiority of tenecteplase with a modified ranking scale of 0 to 1 at 90 to 120 days after treatment. Our current study is a pre-specified secondary analysis of this trial focused on patients with large vessel occlusion strokes as identified by CT angiography. This being strokes affecting the internal carotid artery, M1 and proximal to dominant M2 segment of the MCA, and basilar artery. Modified Rankin scale was the primary outcome of this study, just like the ACT trial. But details regarding reperfusion, according to expanded thrombolysis and cerebral infarction, or TIGI, and recanalization were also examined. Patients were enrolled between December 2019 and January 2022. From the 1,577 patients in the ACT trial, there were 520 that were included in this subgroup and secondary analysis. There were no statistically significant differences between the baseline characteristics of the two treatment arms and the baseline median NIHSS score was 17. In respect to modified Rankin scale of 0 to 1, there was no statistically significant difference between the groups. This was achieved in 32.7% of patients in the tenecteplase cohort and 29.6% in the alteplase cohort. Figure 1 shows the distribution of the modified Rankin scale scores, and the adjusted ordinal analysis did not demonstrate any statistically significant difference. Drilling down into the details, Table 2 contains the procedural outcomes for the 408 patients that underwent endovascular therapy. Overall, again here, no statistically significant differences are seen, and the number of patients who had recanalization by the time angiography was complete was 17.5% in tenecteplase cohort versus 14.6% in the alteplase cohort. Finally, is safety. This is very important since the more severe the stroke, the risk of symptomatic ICH increases in the tenecteplase cohort. This occurred in 6.1% and in 4.3% of alteplase patients, and there was no statistically significant difference. General bleeding events were similar as well between the two cohorts. 
In conclusion, this ACT trial secondary analysis showed similar outcomes between tenecteplase and alteplase for large vessel occlusion ischemic stroke. The interesting aspect to me is the contrasting recanalization findings as compared with the Extend IATNK, so I'm sure this will be continued to be explored. This is a great secondary analysis directed at a question on a lot of our minds and would be curious to hear thoughts on if others are surprised or not by these results. Eric, I'm, I'm going to come a different way. And uh, when I was looking at this article, I was just wondering like why the articles initially thought this subgroup analysis was necessary, right? You mentioned we got the prospective randomized evidence from the extend IA trial um, if you're curious as well, essentially the authors acknowledge those positive findings for TNK in that study, but they reference a, a French research study, almost like a research letter, uh, showing that in like a drip and ship scenario, meaning you start the thrombolytic and ship them to a, a comprehensive stroke center where, you know, if you have an LVO for thrombectomy, you know, in those patients, all to place worked better. So not 100% sure how that letter justified this sub-study, but now we know, question answered, and my thoughts are unchanged regarding the use of TNK in patients with LVO. I like it. We're team TNK here, so Eric, always love when you highlight a study that helps on one of the teams I'm on. Not on many, but team TNK is definitely one of them. Um, now, as we shift to our, our next study, Admittedly, when cancer is involved, I feel like I'm looking up quite a lot of information, but anthracycline-induced cardiac dysfunction is like one of maybe five side effects that I'll definitely remember. So Katie, talk to us about study, a study researching an intervention trying to prevent this terrible long-term risk of treatment in these patients. Yeah, thanks, Nick. This is the STOP CA or STOP Cancer trial published in JAMA researching atorvastatin for anthracycline-associated cardiac dysfunction. Anthracyclines include doxorubicin, danorubicin, idorubicin, and epirubicin and are used in a lot of different cancers for either high-dose treatment like lymphomas or low-dose adjunct therapy like in breast cancer. Anthracyclines are associated with left ventricular systolic dysfunction due to myocyte damage and replacement by fibrous tissue, leading to heart failure. A heart failure diagnosis may lead to the cessation of the anthracycline, which may drop the patient to a less effective treatment plan for their cancer. The incidence of heart failure increases based on the cumulative dose of anthracycline given. Atorvastatin is thought to decrease oxidative damage, leading to reduced cardiac cell death and therefore preserved cardiac function. Retrospective trials have suggested that atorvastatin may preserve cardiac function and reduce anthracycline-associated heart failure. The PREVENT trial published in 2022 looked at 40 milligrams of atorvastatin versus placebo for 24 months to prevent cardiotoxicity from anthracyclines, primarily in women with breast cancer receiving the lower doses of anthracyclines and found no difference in change of LVEF. But this study published by Nealon and colleagues from Mass General as a North American double-blind multi-center randomized controlled trial comparing the efficacy of atorvastatin versus placebo for anthracycline-associated cardiac dysfunction. It included adult patients with lymphoma who are scheduled to receive anthracycline-based chemotherapy. These patients are normally getting high-dose anthracyclines for treatment. Patients who are already taking a statin, indicated for a statin, or intolerant to statins were excluded. They also excluded patients who couldn't receive the cardiac MRI. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive atorvastatin 40 milligrams or 
placebo daily, starting prior to anthracycline infusion and continued for 12 months. Outcomes include proportion of patients with an absolute decline in LVEF of greater than or equal to 10% from prior to chemotherapy to a final value of less than 55% over 12 months. And this is basically the diagnosis of anthracycline-associated LV dysfunction. And this was diagnosed via cardiac MRI. Of the 300 patients enrolled from January 2017 to September 2021, there were 150 patients in each arm. For the baseline characteristics, about 70% of patients had B-cell lymphoma and 25% had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and most of the patients were fully active with an ECOG score of zero, and the median anthracycline dose was 300 milligrams per meter squared. The primary outcome we talked about, the decline in LVEF over 12 months, was significantly less decline in the LVEF and the atorvastatin group compared to the placebo, with only 9% versus 22%, which was statistically significant and a three-fold decrease. The anticipated rate of anthracycline-associated LV dysfunction was about 20% in the placebo arm, so the rates seen in this trial were in line with the author's assumption. There were nine heart failure events with the 3% in the atorvastatin group and 6% in the placebo group, which was not statistically significant. The trial had a robust subgroup analysis, breaking down the data by sex, age older or younger than the median of 52, anthracycline dose less than or greater than 250 milligrams per meter squared, and BMI less than or greater than 30, as well as Hodgkin's versus non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Two groups had a statistically significant absolute difference in LVEF, women and high anthracycline dose of greater than 250 milligrams per meter squared. As far as safety goes, the rate of reported muscle pain was similar at 16% in the atorvastatin group versus 19% in the placebo group, and there was no difference in AST-ALT elevations, CK elevations, or rates of AKI. The bottom line is that atorvastatin is a well-known, relatively safe medication that could potentially have cardioprotective effects in some subgroups of patients. One limitation is that they only use one dose in duration, atorvastatin 40 milligrams for 12 months, so it isn't known if there would be more benefit at a higher dose or longer treatment course, but this trial definitely gives some great data to be built upon in the future. Ultimately, if a patient has an indication for a statin, I'll let them know that their adherence to their statin could possibly help their heart while on an anthracycline, and I would consider adding a statin in patients who are receiving high dose, which would be greater than 250 milligrams per meter squared anthracycline, and in our patients who are women. The drawbacks of adding a torvastatin are increased pill burden and an increased risk of drug-drug interactions. However, anthracycline-associated cardiotoxicity does lead to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and then the patient would have a significant increase in their pill burden for GDMT. So, Katie, uh, we talked before recording. You mentioned you're in the MICU uh, now, have you seen an uptick in use of this since this study got published? How has that how has that um, reacted in a in a center that obviously has a, a higher percentage of of this patient population? Yeah, definitely. After reading this study, I talked to my colleagues that work in lymphoma, and they haven't necessarily seen an increase in use of statins for patients. Um, receiving anthracyclines, but patients who are indicated for a statin definitely receive one. Um, however, they are much more likely to receive rituvastatin over atorvastatin because atorvastatin has significant drug-drug interactions. So that's kind of where this would differ from our practice. Love that. Um, fun facts galore. Another fun fact, um, the atorvastatin used in this study was in a capsule. 
and not a tablet, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, obviously, they made it because it was easier to blind, um, but uh, very cool. Yeah, what an, what an awesome highlight, Katie, because the, the authors note um, – that you know, mortality has been improving among cancer patients, but you know this anthracycline-induced uh, heart failure contributes to that long-term morbidity and probably ultimately mortality in some of these patients. So, some really important findings here. Um, all right, closing out our uh, featured articles is a New England Journal of Medicine article published by the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group and the Device Investigators, a video versus direct laryngoscopy for tracheal intubation of critically ill adults, the device trial. So U.S. multicenter, non-blinded, obviously we'll explain why, parallel group, pragmatic, a randomized clinical trial, uh, 10 ICUs and 7 EDs, so patients could be in either the ED or the ICU, and researchers essentially enrolled patients undergoing oral tracheal intubation by a physician expectly, expected to routinely perform this procedure, right? If you work in a place where you intubate, um, you were a physician that was kind of allowed to do that in this study. And they were, the patients, if they were enrolled, they were randomized to either video laryngoscopy, you know, it was equipped with a camera and a video screen, or direct laryngoscopy, no camera, no screen, you're visually um, confirming. So both are standard of care. It feels like it's kind of generational center driven um, from my kind of anecdotal view of it. Uh, but this study looked to compare them, right? Important to see if one is better than the other. So direct approach, uh, you got a blade, it's got a light, and you're basically getting a direct line of sight. Whereas the video approach, right? Like uh, you have a camera and a light source, transmits the image and you're looking at that image as you're doing it. So, and then all other uh, decisions left to the discretion of that intubating physician and team. So uh, primary outcomes, successful intubation on the first attempt and then important safety outcomes, uh, hypoxia, uh, O2 sat less than 80%, their systolic pressure less than 65 and new or increased vasopressor requirements and then cardiac arrest and or death. So uh, 1,420 patients were enrolled from March through November 2022, published ahead of print in June, and it's no, it's and it's now, uh, we're recording this at the beginning of November. What an impressive turnaround by this author group. Wow. So uh, now they plan to enroll 2,000 patients, but the uh, Data and Safety Monitoring Board recommended stopping due to meeting the pre-specified criteria for efficacy. So in that primary outcome, 85% of patients in the video laryngoscopy group compared to 71% in that direct group, significant difference in that primary outcome. However, important point, depending on what side you're on here, there's no difference in any severe complications. So that occurred in both groups around 21%. So the most common reason for failure was uh, inadequate view of the vocal cords, which is significantly more common in the direct laryngoscopy group. So if you ask me to pick a figure of this study, something that summed up this study for me, um, I would tell you to go to figure S4, uh, heterogeneity of treatment effect by the operator's total number of prior intubations. And what it's showing you is the, um, based on how many prior intubations they've done, your rate of success. And uh, what stands out is in those with less experience, the video laryngoscopy group had a much higher percent with a successful first attempt. But with experience, when you got 152, 250 intubations under your belt, the groups had a similar chance. And then when they talk about the physicians that were in this group, 91% were intubated by an EM resident or critical care fellow, right? So you can have some advanced people that have done a lot, but you're, you could still be fairly new. So, uh, and then 70% of them were intubated by an EM specialist, right? Meaning it's an, uh, they're intubated in the emergency department. Uh, so very well done study. I think this just means, right, that if you've been doing it for a while, you're probably more comfortable direct. 
correct. And if not, you're probably going to at least start with video and get more comfortable. Uh, interestingly, depending on your, your RSI thoughts, the workhorses of this study accommodate and rock uranium, like around 80%, 20 milligrams in a hundred. So a very well done study by all of the uh, device investigators, closing out an awesome uh, six pack of studies here. So we're going to shift gears here for a second. And Eric's going to take the lead. Of course, how are we going to have two care residents on? Not talk a little sepsis. So we're going to get under pressure here for just a second. And, and our first article features our French fearless fluid leader, Xavier Monet, as the first author in this commentary in critical care. So Eric, take it away. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. All right. Yeah, kicking things off for sepsis. This article is titled Evidence for a Personalized Early Start of Norepinephrine in Septic Shock, published in Critical Care. A foundational element of sepsis and septic shock management is prompt volume resuscitation. This review draws attention to how patients exhibit variable responses to fluid resuscitation, and unfortunately, this may prolong the duration of hypoperfusion experienced. With norepinephrine, a synergistic interaction exists where the fluid given for resuscitation is not just sitting in the vasculature. Norepinephrine helps make this fluid more hemodynamically useful. Looking at the evidence about early use of norepinephrine, a fair amount of new data has emerged over the last four years, but results were mixed if mortality could be improved, including the recently published CLOVERS trial, comprised of mostly ED patients presenting with sepsis, in which no difference in 28-day mortality was noted. This review helps generate thought about what patients may benefit from early norepinephrine use, though, and the golden nugget here is an algorithm that describes the author's approach to identifying such patients. The criteria they propose includes a diastolic blood pressure less than 40, a diastolic shock index of greater than 3, which is heart rate over diastolic blood pressure, or at high risk of fluid overload. Overall, I'm a fan of reviews as a jumping off point for the studies they're composed of, and this is certainly no exception. It brings up some great points about how we can maximize the tools we already have in our hands to potentially improve outcomes in sepsis. Yeah, uh, Eric, I completely agree. Uh, the golden nugget is figure one, and we're not talking about the um, old Vegas casino. Um, but what we're talking about is the, I think these critical care commentaries, a lot of times they'll have one figure or table that really makes the article all worth it. And that's what that is, right? Highlighting which patients will likely benefit from early norepinephrine use. I think it's a kind of a great editorial in a sense, makes you think, learn a bit regarding fluids and vasopressors. Yeah, sometimes you can get some nuggets of references here. Um, so great Great first start. So Eric, keep working our way down the septic shock treatment pathway um, and highlight two of our most common adjunct treatments in this next research study. All right. This one's pretty exciting to me. It is titled hydrocortisone versus vasopressin for the management of adult patients with septic shock refractory to norepinephrine, a multicenter retrospective study. And this was published in pharmacotherapy. It's a great head to head that investigates an area of heterogeneity in clinical practice. These agents live in totally different areas of the guidelines 
as we would expect, one being a steroid, one being vasopressor, but the proposed threshold for adding them on is a norepinephrine equivalent of 0.25 mics per kg per minute. In septic shock, both of these agents work to augment hormonal systems which have been stressed or overwhelmed in the setting of a dysregulated host response to infection, aside from traditional catecholamine hemodynamic support. The present trial was a retrospective cohort study from December 2015 through August 2021 that captured data from 10 different hospitals for patients with an ICD-10 diagnosis of septic shock who received norepinephrine plus hydrocortisone, vasopressin, or both. Patients in the vasopressin cohort were likely sicker, according to their baseline characteristics, but a propensity score match cohort was created that included 580 total patients to smooth out these differences. The primary outcome, 28-day mortality, was significantly lower in the hydrocortisone cohort for both unmatched and matched analyses. In the matched analysis, hydrocortisone mortality was 46.9% and vasopressin was 66.9%, so a pretty high mortality overall. A couple of intriguing secondary outcomes. Hydrocortisone was associated with greater likelihood of hemodynamic response and resolution of shock, plus associated with shorter ICU length of stay and more days free of mechanical ventilation in 28 days. So that is hydrocortisone versus vasopressin in septic shock and is a high value piece of literature to hopefully drive further investigation into exactly when to implement each of these respective therapies. Yeah, despite this being a retrospective, I thought the authors did a great job um, putting a lot of thought into how they creating their how do they created their sample size and trying to trying to make it the best retrospective they could. Um, despite my hesitation, on thinking that a retrospective study, right, will truly show real large differences in mortality. I think it's a great design by these authors. Interesting and hypothesis generating. I've always asked this question, maybe versus episode, comparing these two things in the future, but a great job from this uh, group of pharmacists. Uh, so let's close out our sepsis section. And Eric, keep bringing our pressure up with a cross-sectional study from pharmacist friends looking at echocardiogram findings and subsequent vasopressor use in septic shock. Yeah, this last one is titled Echocardiographic Profiles in Hemodynamic Response After Vasopressin Initiation in Septic Shock, a cross-sectional study. And this was published in Journal of Critical Care. It comes from a multidisciplinary group at the Cleveland Clinic. This trial investigates why some patients respond better than others to vasopressin. The hemodynamic concept here is that vasopressin does not provide any beta agonism, unlike norepinephrine or epinephrine, and in the setting of reduced left ventricular function, this may be counterproductive if a patient with poor cardiac function cannot handle the preload and afterload increases from vasopressin. This study was a single-center, retrospective, cross-sectional study of patients with septic shock based on sepsis-3 criteria who had an echo performed within 72 hours before vasopressin was initiated. 129 patients were included, and among patients who had a hemodynamic response to vasopressin, defined as a reduction in norepinephrine equivalence plus a MAP over 65, these patients had a markedly higher left ventricular ejection fraction that was statistically significant. And even in an independent predictor of hemodynamic response in a multivariate regression. 
Left ventricular ejection fraction, I think, is straightforward to operationalize, but they also noted a few other parameters suggestive of better RV function also had a better response. In conclusion, echocardiography before vasopressin and septic shock may have some utility in predicting response to vasopressin by evaluating left ventricular ejection fraction. So maybe even more reason that the ultrasound machine can be a, a permanent member of the rounding team. Oh, yeah. And you got to have a backup because inevitably someone didn't plug it in. Um, definitely uh, featuring uh, Gretchen, Sasha and Seth Bauer, pharmacists, researchers extraordinaire. If you want to hear more, definitely be sure to listen to the AVP All Vasopressin podcast featuring these these two Cleveland rock stars released just earlier uh, this week. Uh, fantastic study looking at personalized care and the use of vasopressin. Uh, like you said, Eric, with the, with the use of ultrasound echoes be, being more common, I think there's going to be a lot more to come and to build off of this retrospective kind of hypothesis generating research here. So three great studies right in our sepsis wheelhouse. Thanks for bringing our pressure up. Um, now, normally we try to pick articles that are in one group. I couldn't pick a specific section. So breaking rules here, I know that is the benefit of hosting is you get to do that. But for our potpourri section, I think we got some really, really good ones. So the first heart article I'm highlighting is one of my favorites because I think it brings across an important message in medicine, the little things and the details matter. And uh, the effects of cuff size on the accuracy of blood pressure readings or the cuff size RCT published in JAMA Internal Medicine's our first review here. So included 105 adult patients in Baltimore, Maryland. They were enrolled in this crossover trial between March and October of 2021. So patients were randomized to the type of blood pressure cuff. It was either appropriate, too big, and too small. So they received four measurements. So everyone got one of those three. And then whatever the appropriate measurement, the appropriate cuff, they got the repeat one of that. So they got four each time. And essentially the primary outcome was difference in the mean systolic and diastolic pressure with the regular, quote unquote, regular cuff uh, compared to the appropriate cuff. And when the regular cuff was too big or too small, it resulted in definitely statistically significantly lower and higher mean blood pressure readings respectively. Now you may be thinking like, Okay, Nick, was it, what, four millimeters of mercury statistically significant? Uh, so let's highlight this. If patients needed an XL cuff, the difference was almost 20 millimeters of mercury, right? So changed a lot. So clearly significant difference as well. Individualized care matters, even with things as basic as blood pressure cuffs. So shifting from the outpatient to the inpatient side, uh, the next article in the potpourri section is a JACCP research uh, looking at the effects of a pharmacist on a pulmonary embolism response team, or PERT. When you say PERT, right, I always think of the shampoo, so uh, shout out to them for great ads. But So we're looking at the, the effect of a pharmacist on that PERT team, uh, published by pharmacists from Boston and Portland, retrospective study, and they compared time to all to place administration before and after the addition of a pharmacist with an emphasis, right, on bedside thrombolytic preparation with the pharmacist on the team. So uh, 36 patients received systemic all to place for a, a submassive or massive uh, PE it, between 2018 and 2022. And the median time to administration was cut by more than half after a pharmacist joined the team, 23 versus 54 minutes. So uh, shout out to this group. What a great contribution to care by all the pharmacists involved with that. 
Um, so batting cleanup here in our third spot, our next article, chest research letter. And I like the research letters that are kind of small highlights of, of studies that are kind of quick hits of things. And, um, this letter examines the effect of delirium in patients receiving temporary mechanical circulatory support. So a retrospective study from university of Michigan and, uh, the one pharmacist author, shout out, uh, Sarah 80, uh, but 379 patients were included from January, 2019 through December, 2021. And the study cohort had an overall delirium incidence of about 24%. And the researchers found that patients who experienced delirium had significantly longer ICU stays over double, as well as longer hospital length of stays. To me, what I'm kind of thinking, right? A lot of times when you have those temporary devices, can't move. You're bed bound, right? So I think this emphasizes to me the role that early mobility can play in delirium prevention because of the inability of a lot of these patients to do that sometimes. So a great kind of research letter in chest. And then closing out my my potpourri section is maybe the uh, best named article about a drug that will uh, stain your hands if you make it gloveless. So Seeing Red is an editorial in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia and describes the interaction between the use of hydroxycobalamin um, and lab parameters. So it's used for vasoplegic treatment, um, essentially has nitric oxide scavenger properties. So what these authors highlight is when you use these higher doses, like you would do for vasoplegia, right? Like the five gram dose, you can have interactions that last up to 48 hours for blood tests, even more than a week for urine, right? Blood can appear grossly hemolyzed, can interfere with those point of care testing. So I think this just reemphasizes our principles. If you get a lab that's strange, that's really unexpected, repeat it. Repeat it to be sure, confirm. So great uh, review though, especially if you practice in cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and seeing red, if you're if you're a Chicago fan, you probably just love that uh, article name here. So uh, potpourri, man, we went all over the place there, uh, highlighting some great things. So Katie, come on back. She was hanging out just for a second as we went through our first two subsections, but we have a fever. That's exactly right. And Katie knows the only prescription is more infectious diseases articles. So lead off our ID section talking about a new antimicrobial agent and insight into dosing while in renal replacement therapy. Thanks, Nick. So this study was published by our colleagues in Italy in the Journal of Critical Care, and it's a descriptive PKPD study of continuous infusion ceftazidime avibactam, brand name Avicaz, in patients receiving CVVHDF or continuous venovenous hemodiafiltration, one of our common continuous renal replacement methods, which removes both fluids and solutes. This is a retrospective study treating difficult-to-treat gram-negative organisms from July 2022 through January 2023. The authors define the PKPD target as an MIC of greater than 4 for ceftazidime and an MIC greater than 1 for avibactam, with drug concentrations measured at steady state. Some important points for the study. In the eight patients they reviewed, seven had normal renal function at baseline and progressed to CVVHDF due to sepsis. All patients originally received 2.5 grams Q8, with three patients being dose reduced to 1.25 grams Q8 while on CVVHDF. But the authors found this dose reduction did not, did not significantly impact the PKPD. 
Table one is a very nice chart on the infections, bugs, doses, and levels for each patient. This study concludes that a total of 1.25 to 2.5 grams QA of ceftazidime avibactam would allow for prompt attainment and maintenance of optimal PKPD targets during high-intensity CVV HDF. And it also suggests that dose-reducing intermittent ceftazidime avibactam for patients with CRRT may lead to suboptimal PKPD. This study adds valuable evidence to continuous infusion dosing for patients on CVV HDF. One question I don't have answered yet is, why were patients receiving this continuous infusion in the first place? I think that they were um, dosed based on the PKPD knowledge in these clinic in these critically ill patients with serious infections. So we don't always know that we are achieving our PKPD targets, especially with beta-lactams, but sometimes continuous infusions um, can feel better for achieving those targets. Well, not only did, you know, you mentioned their renal replacement modality is CVVHDF, right? so trying to use all three modalities in that, but then, you know, the average effluent rate was almost 40 mils per kilo per hour, right? So high dose is what they, they call that in some of those studies. So, it actually kind of makes sense to me that you'd need a continuous infusion. I think it's strange the way that they, you kind of have to dig a little bit to know that they're talking about a continuous infusion. Cause if you just glance at this abstract, it's not as easy cause it says every eight hours and that's essentially cause the stability is, uh, every eight hours there. And, the um, only other thing, right, difficult to treat infections was the inclusion criteria here. I kind of just assumed that meant bloodstream infections, but VAP, intra-abdominal infections, which may just make sense. Those can be terrible to treat. So um, agree, Kate, with what you said, with the especially these new antimicrobial agents, appreciate having at least some published evidence to guide us. Right? As long as you have one, you have a starting place. Um, so let's stay in our resistant gram-negative infection portfolio here in KD. Let's compare two more of our newer agents in a Saudi Arabian population. Yeah, next is ceftolazine tazobactam versus ceftazidime avibactam for the treatment of infections caused by multidrug-resistant or MDR pseudomonas aeruginosa, a multicenter cohort study out of Saudi Arabia and published in the American Society for Microbiology. This study was completed before the IDSA redefined MDR pseudomonas as difficult to treat or DTR pseudomonas, so take that into account when reading this article. But the authors here uh, define MDR pseudomonas as the presence of MDR isolates, which they state can be considered as DTR pseudomonas. There are a few mechanisms that cause pseudomonas to be MDR, including penicillin-derived cephalosporinases and porins. Ceftolazine tazobactam is not hydrolyzed by those penicillin-derived cephalosporinases and is affected less by porins than ceftazidime avibactam, so, so it should theoretically work better against MDR pseudomonas. In this retrospective study, 200 patients were evenly split between the septolazine tazobactam and septazidine avibactam arms. Ultimately, they found no difference in any safety or efficacy outcome, including overall in-hospital mortality, 30-day mortality, and clinical care at the end of treatment. There was a trend towards an increased clinical care and decreased mortality rate in patients receiving septazidime avibactam, but that arm also had lower MIC thresholds and more appropriate dosing, which may help explain that trend. About 20% of patients in the septolazine tazobactam group were dosed inappropriately, and a separate analysis emphasizes using the 3-gram dose for pneumonia for a much better PKPD optimization, leading to numerically lower rates of mortality and higher rates of clinical cure compared to the 1.5-gram dose. I think we are still trying to figure out the exact place in therapy for our novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, and any evidence out there 
continues to improve our understanding of these drugs. Yeah, shout out our uh, Saudi Arabian colleagues because the study points out that each site in this study had one to two data collectors who were clinical pharmacists with specialized training in infectious diseases. So very cool, them getting the shout out. Uh, I love that you pointed out, Katie, that this was before those guidelines because if you're curious, you're like, oh, wait a second. Like, I'm curious where this is. They don't recommend either of the two they were studying here due to, like you said, that concern for resistance um, and they kind of talk about that meropenem vapor back tam. So, but um, I like highlighting the new ones. Sometimes they can get kind of jumbled in the head. So I like having some articles to help review, keep those separate, um, at least for me. Now, Katie, we've almost cured our fever. Let's finish out that treatment, right? Just because we're feeling better. We got to finish the course. Let's finish with an article that's kind of themed less is more. Yeah, this is an article published in JAMA Internal Medicine by our colleagues at Yale, titled Evaluating the PenFast Clinical Decision-Making Tool to Enhance Penicillin Allergy Delabeling. When patients have a self-reported historic penicillin allergy, it's important to do additional investigation into the reaction to determine if it's appropriate to challenge their allergy. And the PenFast Clinical Decision-Making Tool supplies a quick and easy way to evaluate patients with low-risk penicillin allergies. It has four criteria corresponding to the letters F-A-S-N-T spelling FAST. Starting with F for five, if the reaction is in five years or less, add two points. A and S go together if the reaction was A for anaphylaxis or angioedema or S for a severe cutaneous reaction, also add two points. And the letter T is for treatment. If the reaction required treatment, then add one point. Scores of two or less are thought to be low risk, while scores of two or higher are thought to be higher risk and may need a skin test prior to oral challenge. This retrospective chart review study looked to validate the PenFast algorithm outside the country where it was developed. From October 2020 to July 2022, the authors identified 120 outpatients with reported penicillin allergies who underwent penicillin allergy testing. The authors found that PenFast had a negative predictive value of 100%, meaning that in patients with PenFast score of 2 or less, a direct oral challenge is safe and ultimately leads to penicillin allergy delabeling. This is a really easy tool to use in order to stratify patients based on risk to start delabeling penicillin allergies and hopefully broadening the available antibiotics for patients. Beta-lactams are the first line for many infections, and with the creation of the more novel beta-lactam beta-lactamase inhibitors, they may also be one of our last lines of defense and some seriously resistant infections. Our patients have the best chance at clinical care when we can put them on the best antibiotic for their infection. And the PenFast tool is a great way to challenge low-risk penicillin allergies and open up patients' antibiotic options. Yeah, Katie, I love this. It's a it's a great, nice, easy scale to help identify the severity of reactions. I think it gives us a little more comfort in delabeling those allergies, I think uh, sometimes there can be anxi some anxiety with messing with that. Oh my gosh, what if what if this patient is the 0.001% and my name's on it? So we have a scale. Pull that supplementary appendix to um, to see it visually, but very cool. Um, what awesome kind of ID studies there, Katie. That's right, y'all. We made it. It's time to discuss the articles voted on by you, the listeners, our pharmacist featured articles at the front of the fridge. So 
So not shockingly, I, I told you all in the beginning of the episode that we'd have more JACCP articles due to the fact, right, that that August issue was a special issue on clinical pharmacy practice in critical care. And our pharmacy colleagues at the University of uh, Cincinnati, huge shout out to uh, Molly and Chris Drogi. They published a project in JACCP detailing their critical care medication use optimization through a pharmacy morbidity, mortality, and improvement program. So what a cool concept. I think traditionally known as M&Ms, now you might hear them referred to as MMI programs. A lot of times you see those done with physicians or even multidisciplinary like critical care teams. Um, but these authors describe a process where uh, residents and preceptors select a medication incidence. Uh, they do a root cause analysis from a medication safety perspective and talk about it with this group. The, the, they point out there's another publication going in-depth into this whole process itself. So if this is interesting, definitely look at that. But the study's objective was to describe interventions made to the critical care medication use process through this MMI program. And the program reviewed 54 cases. The majority of errors were actually serious with a high potential uh, for harm. And from those 54 cases, 88 intervention opportunities were identified. And what was really interesting to me is that in each event, on average, there was more than one area where you could intervene, right? If you think of the Swiss cheese model of how an error happens, there are multiple processes there. So I encourage everyone to actually read that JACCP article as well because they give some amazing examples of cases, things that we've seen, whether it's from hypertonic saline, IV, tacrolimus, uh, awesome, really cool things. So great stuff from our Cincinnati colleagues over there in the natty. Um, now, the winner of the second article vote shifts our focus into cardiac arrest resuscitation. And this chest meta-analysis dives into the comparative efficacy and safety of different epinephrine dosing and treatment regimens in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So they included 18 uh, RCTs. They had an initial 13,884 citations. Uh, shout out to the librarian on that team. Uh, wow. So from those 18 studies included, uh, 21,594 patients, and they had uh, three treatment arms with the fourth being placebo or no treatment. Uh, standard dose ACLS epinephrine, high dose epinephrine, or epinephrine and vasopressin, right? So standard dose, one milligram every three to five minutes. Um, high dose, Higher than that, an epinephrine and vasopressin, meaning you're you're using those in combination. Because reminder, right? They took those out. They took vasopressin out in the guidelines simply to make them easier and more streamlined. So, uh, all three pharmacotherapy treatment arms increased ROSC percentage and survival to hospital admission compared to placebo or no treatment. However, none of these increased survival to discharge or survival with a good functional outcome. So they do note one subgroup, non-shockable rhythm, standard dose epi help improve survival to hospital discharge. But on the whole, I think we know that. I think we kind of know this and remember this, but it's always good to remind ourselves that it truly is, you know, uh, high quality CPR, shocking in a shockable rhythm, those types of things that really make some of the best difference for survival to discharge, good functional outcomes. And closing out the listener voted articles, remember at Pharmacy 2 Dose, if you want to participate, our final article is actually a collaboration between the Mayo Clinic and Loyola University. And 
I know what you're thinking. This isn't a battle for cold weather supremacy. Uh, it was actually pharmacists from these two institutions collaborated on a review to describe pharmacotherapy considerations and optimization for rapid sequence intubation or RSI in the emergency departments published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this is something that should get saved away for all. They review pretreatment agents, induction agents, paralytics, but they also talk about fun controversies like uh, NMBA timing, lower dose induction agents, awareness with paralysis, awake intubation, 131 references they use to put this paper together. I mean, great pictures of medication mechanisms of action, and of course, a fantastic drug information table on most of those pharmacologic agents. So, Awesome job from some of the friends of the pod, uh, Caitlin Brown and Megan Rex, starting and ending the episode, as well as Alicia Madsen. So really cool stuff here. Closing out our pharmacist featured articles is an updated position paper to develop consensus recommendations aimed at direct patient care activities for the advancement of critical care pharmacy practice. So, uh, this is, it follows up the 2020 position paper on critical care pharmacy uh, services. So a JACCP article uh, on behalf or collaboration with ACCP critical care PRN, right, a sponsor. So everyone go download, read this paper, but it's a multidisciplinary task force, pharmacists, of course, but also physicians, uh, advanced practice providers, nurses. So we're including the whole team and Essentially, what happened is we created 61 critical care pharmacist clinical activity statements, right? What are ways that things that we need to do clinically or things that we, you know, can do to help advance? And ultimately, uh, the task force voted and they reached consensus on 93% of those. So 57 out of the 61%, at least 70% of the task members agreed or strongly agreed that those kind of fall under um, the scope of critical care pharmacists. So uh, despite barriers to implementation in these things that the, the paper highlights, uh, provides the framework for, for promoting novel critical care pharmacist prescriptive authority over specific aspects of direct patient care. So a really cool article, awesome JACCP, JACCP paper in collaboration with the PRN. So I love that, doing things that we can to help advance the uh, profession of pharmacy and specifically uh, critical care pharmacy. And the last section of the August 2023 literature review series is, of course, our grab bag, some of those non-clinical articles. I'm not going to lie to y'all, some of these, I wouldn't necessarily say they're, they're positive, optimistic, they're perspectives. So sometimes we get really upbeat, awesome ones, uh, but these are really two important ones that I want to highlight. So the first letter, it's published in JAMA Neurology, published, it, it tugs at the heartstrings, uh, written by Dr. Salwi, who's a pediatric neuro, neurosurgeon. Uh, it essentially describes a tragic scene and you're trying to explain the difference between non-survivable and brain death. And I think it, it shows a pretty real discussion of emotions. You know, families want to do everything they can, right, for that kind of comfort, despite it being non-survivable, right? But I think it also shows how that family hope can lead to trust issues, not only with them and the team, but also with the team itself doing all these things for something, right, that, that we kind of know, um, what the outcome is probably going to be. Then, you know, comparing it to like a buoy in a storm of tragedy. So well, well-written perspective piece. Definitely if you're in trauma or anything, definitely look. And the next article, um, why it stood out to me initially is it's a graphic story. 
So it's three pages, very few words, but pictures. And through a few words and multiple pictures, it describes pretty, lays out in a pretty real way, the failures of the U.S. hospitals and insurances. So essentially it's a, it's a, they're introducing a patient. This patient was suspected to have ALS. And then the course is complicated by all the things. So I'm going to go through some of these things they highlight. Every one of these things are things you heard of. They needed three MRIs because they couldn't lay still for one, right? And that took a week. They couldn't repeat that EMG at the same hospital because they needed to go somewhere else, right? They could only do one there. The insurance wouldn't pay for rehab because they didn't have an official diagnosis. They couldn't do the repeat EMG, right? So ultimately, this patient still in pain and things laid in the hospital bed for days and days and days not getting the care he needed. So uh, plug just to say that insurance sucks uh, from this, but that's the graphic story highlight. I think it's really cool when we're getting things that aren't necessarily word published. We're getting those kind of different content like stories and things. So don't let the ending bring down the whole episode mood because August, 2023, it was a great month uh, for articles. So I want to give another huge, huge thank you to our special guests, uh, Eric Johnson and Katie Rogers. Uh, So reminder, Right, reach out to them, let them know what a awesome job that they did. Uh, Katie at Crit Care Katie and Eric is at Eric Johnston underscore RX. So, Eric, Katie, I appreciate you both coming on, sharing uh, some of your expertise, and highlighting some of these awesome studies for myself and the listeners. So, I appreciate you both. Thanks so much for having us, Nick. It was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot and always a friend of the pod. I love staying up to date, whether it's new literature and series like this or old stuff on the on the daily uh, trial of the day. Seeing that on Twitter is a favorite of mine. Yeah, I echo that. Um, I was super excited to be on the pod. Um, I definitely love it. I'm always listening to one of the episodes, like before a topic discussion for a little refresher, learning some some new stuff, some literature. So I really appreciate all of your hard work on the pod. Oh, wow. Kind, kind words. Bringing the mood way up. I like it. You all are, are, are taking the slack from me and doing that. So I appreciate you both. Thanks again. And thanks again to uh, Eric and Katie, not only for all they did for this episode, but their patience as it got released. Two of the best. Um, Reference list with all these articles we talked about and more is featured in the podcast episode description as well as the awesome website, PharmacyToDose.com. But until next time, I'm Nick Peters. This is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. Podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.